We'll stand for the reading of God's word. This is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless us. That we would receive your word like little children. That we would submit to it. That we would learn from it. That we would be uh, rebuked and encouraged by it. And Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Laziness, worldly ambition or ambition for worldly gain, and lust for power. Three temptations that plague pastors and elders. The passage we just read warns elders against those sins and in opposition to them, puts forward the positive alternatives of those things. Give the sheep voluntary attention rather than neglecting them because of laziness. Second, do the work of an elder voluntarily as opposed to doing it only when there is some sort of gain for yourself. And then third, be self-controlled, seeking the good of those you serve rather than giving yourself to, uh, to a power trip, to uh, lording over those you are supposed to be serving. These are the sins we are prone to commit as officers of the church. Laziness and neglect, working only for personal profit, and ruling like a tyrant in our own little kingdoms. What's the context of Peter's letter to the churches? The goal of this letter from the Apostle Peter is to encourage Christians to remain faithful in the midst of persecution. He does not want the fire of persecution to embitter them toward God or confuse them because when when persecution comes, it's easy to think that God has abandoned you. Rather, he wants the sheep to understand that their sufferings are sent by God as a blessing. He writes, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that... Also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. This is the same path that Jesus Christ traveled, right? And Christians should expect to follow their shepherd on the same path. 
Why then at the end of this letter does Peter turn to exhort the elders? Well, because the apostle Peter knows that while the people are suffering persecution, the elders and pastors who are tasked with shepherding those brothers and sisters on a daily, uh, on a daily basis are weighed down doubly. They too are personally suffering persecution, but on top of that they have or should have right, a concern for each of the members of their church. They suffer persecution and know that their sheep suffer as well, facing temptations even to leave Jesus behind for some relief. The apostle Peter knows these men need encouragement. They're experiencing the cost of following Christ personally. On top of that, they see and know that the sheep for which they're responsible, that they love, suffer. Even still, even seeing their sheep suffering, perhaps because they see their sheep suffering, they are tempted themselves to cut and run. They are tempted to resort to negligent laziness, to self-indulgent worldly ambition, to self-centered heavy-handedness. And Peter knows this, right? Peter knows this through personal experience. He betrayed the Lord in the heat of battle. Those last hours of Christ's life, he doesn't turn to exhort elders in some academic way now. Uh, Treating these sins as merely theoretical, but not really what these elders might be prone to do. Right, he turns to these elders and exhorts them with great seriousness to be careful about their hearts in this work. He thought it better for himself and his own flesh to deny he knew Jesus to a young servant girl. It didn't take much for his worldly ambition to kick in. He had been negligent. He knew how to withdraw and hold himself aloof. He neglected Gentile sheep because he feared the party of the circumcision. He also could be heavy-handed. Peter had, uh, think of this, Peter had participated in the great council of the apostles. Now, which great council of the apostles am I thinking of? Not Acts 15 the great council of the apostles just after Jesus ate his last supper with them in the upper room, right? There Peter argued, as did all the rest, that he was the greatest of the apostles. And Jesus rebukes them and tells them that they are on the path of becoming little despots. Instead, Jesus tells them that they are to become like the youngest, like uh, to become servants. And the apostle Peter then knows the temptations that he's warning these fellow elders about in this, in this letter. He has lived, lived with these sins, these temptations. And Peter writes them as a fellow elder. He, he's lowering himself there, right? He's lowering himself. 
to the same rank as these elders, though an apostle, though an eyewitness of Christ's sufferings. He had learned humility, but it had been a long and hard road in which he learned humility. He desires to warn these elders so that they might avoid uh, the sins, his own sins along that road. So the first temptation that we face is laziness. Have you ever seen the animals of a lazy farmer? They suffer. They suffer, they're sick, they have bloated bellies from malnutrition, they stink. Have you observed the house of someone who is lazy? Clutter, dishes filling the sink, dirty, unrepaired or half-repaired situations everywhere. Barely a place to sit. Have you observed the children of a lazy mother or father? Unclean, undisciplined, untaught, and unhappy. The result of lazy elders in a church will be similar. The sheep of the flock will be malnourished. They'll be sick, left to themselves, undisciplined, disheveled, unhappy, unprepared. They'll be unmotivated. They'll be unholy. And like sheep who do not have a shepherd, the sheep, when they are neglected, fall into danger. They stumble and fall and return to the patterns of sins they claim to have left behind. We read this about Jesus. Seeing the people, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And so when shepherds don't feel compassion for the sheep, they cease shepherding the sheep. When shepherds do not shepherd, the sheep become distressed and dispirited. They become anxious and depressed. A husband, a husband who is lazy and neglects his wife will have a distressed and dispirited wife. A father or mother who is lazy and neglects his or her children will have distressed and dispirited children. A boss who is lazy and neglects his employees will have distressed and dispirited employees. And so elders and pastors who are lazy and neglect their church members will have distressed and dispirited church members. We often mistakenly think that it is benevolent Perhaps this is my sin. It's benevolent to give our employees, our children, our church members space. Right? We gotta give them space. By which we mean not space, we mean complete freedom and independence. It's true, pastors and elders can be too close, too heavy-handed, too much of a disciplinarian. We'll get to that in a moment. A field commander Right, that inhumanely barks orders all the time and everywhere, even when the stakes are not high, creates dispirited and lethargic and discouraged troops. Yet it is also true that too much distance or continually making the judgment call that people don't want us involved in meddling will also lead to distressed and dispirited people. Pastors, when we are lazy, we justify our inaction by reasoning that we need to give space. The worst sin we can commit, we think, is to be too involved. 
too involved. Again, the example of Jesus. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd. And again, it says he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then what does he do? He began to teach them many things. Right? Jesus began to teach them many things. The sheep need to be taught many things. When we are lazy, we don't even want to teach one thing, thinking of all the work that that will necessitate after the first meeting. Peter says to the elders, shepherd the flock of God among you. Do the work of shepherding. Make sure the sheep have water, that they have food, that they have pasture, protection from wolves, medicine, shelter. Keep watching, making sure that none stray. Use the rod and the staff to bring back the string. And as Jesus did, teach them many things, both by your mouth and by your example. Let me also say something here that I think all of us need to hear and something that I think will be important to us as a presbytery, a church that honors God. Notice if you're looking at the, is it behind me? Oh, the references. Notice he says, shepherd the flock of God. And then what does he say? Shepherd the flock of God among you, among you, right? Many pastors and elders neglect their own sheep so they can serve the sheep in other pastures. Not those among them. Social media, podcasting, the vanity enterprises of this world, those things are the real pandemic today. And they seduce Pastors and elders, they seduce us. They seduce men who aren't called to office to speak as if they were, and it also seduces men who are called to office to neglect their own sheep so they can speak to sheep in other pastures. Now, having a podcast, having a blog, having several, several, we now can't just have Facebook, we have to have Gab, we have to have... Um, parlor, we have to have um, whatever, MeWe, and having those feeds to populate with your thoughts and interviews to engage in and books to write does not necessarily mean you are neglecting the sheep of your own pasture, the sheep among you, but it can, dear brothers and sisters. It is the extraordinary man who is able, by God's blessing, to have a ministry beyond his own church who can avoid neglecting the sheep whose names he knows and whose stink he smells and whose joys and agonies he actually witnesses. Of course, everyone with a blog and a podcast and a gab feed will say that what they do is mainly meant for their own sheep. It's another way for them to feed their own sheep and I don't buy it. I don't buy it for a second. My vanity would never allow that. How are you immune to it? How are you immune to it? So admit it, men, you get, you get bored with your sheep. And you get bored with your sheep and you get angry with your sheep because they never give you any positive feedback. You need the itch 
to be scratched by those sheep in other men's pastures. They give you the feedback you desire because you know they are quite happy with you and your distance from them. They're very happy with that. I mean, seriously, how can, how can you do all these things and I find it overwhelming even to shepherd my six children and wife? It's overwhelming. Add to that the 60 or so members of my church and the members of this presbytery and I get nervous, anxious. I want to throw up at that kind of responsibility. And shall we add several hundred or several thousand others that we shepherd from a distance? You say it's not shepherding. Well then, it will be easy to give up because God has called you to shepherd brothers. But it is shepherding. And I won't deny that elders and pastors have to have in mind the larger church. They must. But in taking on the sheep of other men's flocks at a distance, do you seriously want to give an account before God for their souls? Like you will be required to do. Do you not see that in seeking to shepherd the whole world, you are going to be judged for the whole world. Yes, the the apostles were called to it. But Timothy was not. Right, he was dropped off by the apostle Paul in specific locales to do his work. He was limited to that. No one thinks like this. No one thinks that writing books and publishing podcasts comes with responsibility. Right, that we will have to own up to our readers and hearers' reactions, that we will have to give an account for every word that we have spoken and published before God Almighty, and we will have to do this when we really know nothing about those sheep and don't see at all how they're putting into practice what we say publicly. That should cause us some fear. It's fearful enough to preach to the souls that are right in front of you. That should cause us some reticence to engage in shepherding at a distance. Some men who have ministered for decades are capable of this kind of shepherding and they are a gift to his church. But some of you young men are not capable of it and are not a gift to his church in this. Yet, it is undeniably a temptation to neglect our sheep so that we can fill the mouths of other sheep and other pastures who have their own shepherds, but we do so not knowing or not having to know them and to uh, smell them. It's, it's really wonderful, it's fulfilling. This is why academics love to guest lecture. They love to podcast. They love to write books. They love to, they get mostly positive feedback and never have to actually ever deal with sheep. They get to shepherd without sheep. It's like being able to have sex and not have a wife. I want the reputation of our presbytery to be this, shepherds who care for their sheep. 
shepherds who care for the sheep among them. Is God pleased with this, this prima donnafication of the pastorate? Do we need another man who doesn't understand his calling? Do we have no fear of God when we embrace shepherding at a distance while our own sheep are neglected? Do we, do we want to be known for our views on politics and culture while our children forsake the Lord? Do we want to build an empire, how, however pathetically small it might be? Or do we want to shepherd the flock of God among us? Baxter writes, when we are commanded to take heed to all the flock, it is plainly implied that flocks must ordinarily be no greater than we are capable of overseeing. God will not lay upon us natural impossibilities. He will not bind men to leap up to the moon, to touch the stars, or to number the sands of the sea. If the pastoral office consists in overseeing the flock, then surely the number of souls under the care of each pastor must not be greater than he is able to take such heed to as is here required. Again, I say, I mean, my six children, my wife seems like an overwhelming amount of shepherding. So hear the exhortation of the Apostle Peter and let's repent of our delusions of grandeur, our misunderstanding of our calling of what should be first things for pastors and elders. The Spirit says, shepherd the flock of God among you. Know your station, men. Everybody wants to be a general, but the church today needs lieutenants and captains. That's what the church needs. This won't play well in Peoria. It will not get us noticed by other prima donnas. It'll be tiresome and thankless work, but giving ourselves to the sheep God has put in our own pastures will honor God and properly demonstrate to the church that's addicted to egos and names and personalities and distance-delivered teaching, divorced from real life, that Evangel Presbytery is simply serious about one thing, which is shepherding her people. Moving on. Second, the elders are, do their, are to do their work of shepherding and oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. It is the will of God that those who have been set apart by the laying on of hands and ordination will not do their work begrudgingly. They shouldn't be the kind of men who complain about a meeting or an opportunity to preach or teach, or the sins and difficulties of their church members. They should be the kind of men who are aware of their calling, aware of the task, aware of the great God they serve and the needs of the flock they oversee. They shouldn't have to be forced to this work. The work of shepherding the flock is not some sort of afterthought for the man who obeys this. It is what they think about even as they do the work that provides for their own households. Think of how pathetic it is, and I've had to exhort myself to this every day, when you have to remind a father to be a father to his children. It's shameful. 
how pathetic when you have to be remind, when you have to, when we have to remind a mother to be a mother. Imagine a man who watches his wife suffer through nine months of agonizing pregnancy, then labor, then sleepless nights as she nurses, who then gives himself to entertainment. She's out in the field, so to speak, making sure her little lamb doesn't die, and he's inside on his comfy chair watching bloopers from Seinfeld. Or he's dropping into his virtual world when his wife is tenaciously grappling with the real world. That's tragic, and it's tragic because that man is forgetting what responsibility came with the blessing of wife and children. Did you think you could go on living without responsibility when you got married? Will you now only father under compulsion? It's also tragic when someone called, trained, elected, set apart to to shepherd God's flock has to be reminded or even compelled to do his work. They should voluntarily, with a happy heart, with awe at God's calling, engage in the work of shepherding the flock. They should look for opportunities to talk with the sheep. They should be thinking about the ministries of the church, even on a Tuesday evening. Our flesh fights this, though. Some of us get through it by doing the bare minimum. Calvin says, they who seek to do no more than what constraint compels them do their work formally and negligently. The elder or pastor who just shows up to session meetings to vote is doing his work formally and negligently. He thinks that he is solely a decision maker, not a shepherd. He does not want to get dirty. He does not want to have to deworm his sheep. He does not want to have to wake up at 3 a.m. to help that mama sheep deliver her babies, that is one of the ways that I've seen laziness in elder boards. There are those who want formally to be an elder but do not have any sense that they have to get close to the members of the church. What pastor hasn't struggled with that temptation in his own heart? Shepherding the flock of God does involve session meetings and budget presentations, but there's much more, right? May the Lord give us the kind of officers who are capable or who are terrible at budget presentations, but who know their people, who pray for their people, who exhort and protect and teach their people, who are not deterred by their sins, and who are not aloof when those same sheep are prospering. Apostle Peter writes, shepherd the flock of God not for sordid gain but with eagerness. There are some people who only do things, right, worth doing when they are paid to do them or there is some tangible benefit they receive in the work. Are you that way? Do you find it hard to get to a church work day or a 45-minute prayer meeting? Honestly, because there really is nothing in it for you. Right, there's no payout. Now the worker is worthy of his wages, that is for sure, but, but you, you find out how much a man, you, you find out what a man loves, what a man is given to by what he gives himself to without being paid to do it. 
If you're the kind of man who must be compensated before you're motivated, you won't be a good elder. If compensation is the only thing that makes you eager, you may be fond of sordid gain, or at the very least, you're only willing to do what pays immediate dividends in this life. Are we eager for the glory of Christ? Are we eager for the growth of the church? Are we eager for the spread of the gospel? Are we eager for the maturity of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we eager for the salvation of our neighbors? Are we eager for the work of the diaconate? Are we eager for the work of the eldership? Or are we eager for our own wallet, our own stomachs, our own leisure time, and our own egos? After explaining to the Corinthians that those who labor in the gospel should be paid, the apostle Paul then says this about the fact that he was not paid. He says, but I have used none of these things and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of for I am under compulsion For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. You see, the compulsion to preach the gospel was the apostle Paul's primary motivation. He was the kind of man who felt joy in his duty before God. He did his work without being forced except by the Holy Spirit. Third, the apostles, Peter says, shepherd the flock of God, not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. The kind of authority that lords over those given to him by God likes to use the means that that he has at his disposal, the preaching of the word, church discipline, private exhortation and rebuke to vent their own private revenge. or to carry their point by mere violence and out-wearying of those that oppose them. In other words, the pastor or elder who uses his legitimate charge, he does have authority to whack people down for no good purpose, but only for his own private revenge, is using his authority to lord, lord it over others. Do you think you are above that? how many times have we been tempted to discipline others simply because we don't like them? Or baser still because we're just perpetually in a bad mood. Now being told not to be heavy handed in our discipline is difficult to accept in a culture that despises authority. I mean in a culture that hates authority we we have to assert you know, our manliness and put the little woman in her place, don't we? Let's not think that our culture is unique to this concept. The heart of man is wicked after all and it naturally gravitates toward hatred to authority and rebellion. I've worked as a pastor for nearly two decades and time and time again I've seen the, the authority of the church, the authority of those who have had a, a charge allotted to them by God himself thrown off as if it were nothing. 
You've seen it too. We've all seen it time and time again. Here's what I've seen. The minute an elder or pastor exercises his God-given duty to privately and publicly rebuke a person, that member clutches his pearls and says, how dare you? An elder goes to a man and tells him that he must discipline his children and eight times out of 10, or maybe it's nine times, or maybe it's 10 times out of 10, that man excuses his behavior and then resents the attention those fathers in the faith have given to him. You tell a homeschooling mom that her children are proud and rather than working to win the next spelling bee, they should just work with their hands and get sweaty. She considers that you've betrayed everything excellent and good. Tell one of these defy tyrants men or women that they have to wear a mask into Costco and customer service lines are going to be lighting up with a bunch of Christians calling Costco's decisions fascist and draconian, right, and a threat to freedom. Pastors and elders have the unenviable job of having to keep watch over the souls of people who do not want to have their souls watched over. And so there is almost no way in which authority today is viewed in any other way than heavy-handed. Even when elders and pastors are as gentle as can be, our rebel hearts insist that they are lording it over us. And this must be said, dear brothers and sisters, the elders and pastors of the church have a charge over you in the Lord, and if they speak to correct you, that is not lording it over you. It could be. It could be that an elder is seeking to take his revenge out against you because you have personally offended him. Elders have to continually examine their hearts. But dear brothers and sisters, just as wives have to learn to obey their husbands and everything, so we have to learn to yield to authority. Authority is not always bad. And even bad authority must be submitted to, and it can be submitted to because God will bring those heavy-handed monsters to his judgment seat. What we have thrown in our faces, no matter how gentle our corrections to people, what we have thrown in our faces is that we are lording it over people. So much the more must we be willing to heed the Spirit's admonition here. Don't lord your authority over your sheep. Rather prove to be an example. You want to have stubborn sheep who don't follow you? Show them how stubborn you are about matters indifferent. Standing six feet from others in a line, for example. Just because we think we live in a unique age that hates authority more than any other age did does not give us the right to act like shock jocks in the pulpit to rule our churches like angry popes and determine a sheep's godliness based solely on whether they're pleasing us personally. On the other hand, don't be lazy and cowardly and refuse to exercise your authority. On the other hand, don't run your ministry making decisions based upon who's offended you lately. There's much we need to learn about authority and submission, and yes, benevolent leadership that is genuine and godly concern for the good of the sheep, but because we see hatred for authority, again, not new to us, doesn't mean that we should 
not be like Jesus, who is gentle and humble in heart. Matthew Henry writes, the pastors of the church ought to consider their people as the flock of God, as God's heritage, and treat them accordingly. They are not theirs to be lorded over at pleasure, but they are God's people and should be treated with love, meekness, and tenderness for the sake of him to whom they belong. The apostle concludes with this encouragement for elders and pastors. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There is a chief shepherd whose name is Jesus Christ. It is not that he is the only shepherd, but he has in his love for the members of his flock given real authority to under shepherds who serve at his command. He will reward those under shepherds. Jesus will award an unfading crown of glory to these elders and pastors who shepherd his flock according to the ways demanded in this passage. There is great gain in this work, but it comes later. It comes later. At the end of this race of life, after we have served Christ and lived in such a way that we sought to honor him above all else, he will give to us a victor's wreath, an unfading crown, a token of honor. That crown will signify that we are his blood-bought people, his younger brother, his victorious bride, and in many cases, under-shepherds who loved his bride. So live in such a way that you are running for that prize. Serve Christ in such a way that you prove you are seeking his approval. That's dramatic. God will richly reward you with suffering, right? He'll richly reward you with suffering and difficult labor in this life. All Peter says is a blessing and ease and comfort and honor in the next, that unending blessing. Amen? Let's pray. Father, We thank you that Jesus is our chief shepherd. And Father, we we have been lazy and worldly ambitious and negligent in our shepherding work. We have been easy to anger. We have been motivated by self-interest and selfishness. And so Father, as, as we contemplate these words from the apostle. Lord, I pray that they would sink into our hearts and that we would be good shepherds, like Jesus is. Help us to do this work. Help us to have minds so filled with your glory that it, it, is, it is every joy to shepherd your sheep. Help us to be faithful, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.